ops, and a little bit of paranoia. Welcome to the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. Good evening, folks, and welcome to tonight's episode of the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and tonight I'm joined by only one co-host. Hello, Charles. How's it going? Haven't seen you in a while. Hey, I'm back, folks. Charles going all right, Nate. He's been he's been a bit busy lately, right? So you know, understandable in this in today's world. <laughs> well, we had this whole little start a term thing at uh, at the college, and you know that it can be a little taxing. Yeah, I bet things have been a bit crazy in the world in general. I can only imagine in a uh, an industry, or I don't know, do you call higher ed an industry? I suppose it is, uh, where. Part of your, I mean, I guess, I guess if we're honest, it is an industry. Yeah, where uh, where part of your livelihood involves taking people's children in. <laughs> I guess they're not children by the time they get to college, but uh, still, um, the definition of child I think is changing over the years as people get more and more protective. <laughs> but at any rate, young I can adults. imagine young adults. There we go. That's a good one. So, uh, yeah, we're a little light on co-host tonight, but I'm glad Charles was able to join me because uh, Mark had to back out last minute, but uh, that's okay. I hope everything's well there, but uh, that's all good. So, uh, unfortunately, though, the topic we have for tonight is one he, can't, he came up with, so we're going to have to do it justice. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight we're going to talk a little bit about, basically, uh, vendors and uh, your relationship with them, right? So I... I'm in the unique position where I'm now working for a vendor <laughs> where I wasn't in the past and I just had to deal with vendors in the past happens that I'm working for a vendor that I liked dealing with when I was uh, not a vendor. <laughs> but um, I guess the concept of tonight's talk or tonight's uh, main topic is basically how should IT people, or I guess maybe even people in general, deal with their vendors and uh, Mark's specific uh, angle on this was how to deal with support, right? So, you know, you've opened a support case and things are going well or things are not going well. Uh, what's the right way to deal with, you know, the person on the other end of the phone or the person on the other end of the support case? So um, we've all seen it probably, especially in IT. You get, you can sometimes get very abrasive with, uh, with your vendors because, you know, you're trying to beat them up on a price or you're trying to get something you know, handed to you or you're trying to get whatever out of your vendor and you feel like no one's getting hurt, right? So, uh, I don't know, Charles, do you have any experience? I think we all do at some point. <laughs> yeah, more than a little. I mean, there, there's so much to say on this. I think I would start by noting that um, your vendor is, like, you and the vendor are partners. Um you know, um, whether you have a contract with them or not, but especially actually if you have a contract with them and you're paying them, like these, they're your partners um, and you know, they're not your coworker necessarily, but you're trying to maintain a service. They're helping you do that. And you need to treat them with respect because they are, you know, they're going to be essential to like, obviously they're essential in some way or you wouldn't be buying something from them in the first place. So when you go to get support for them, keep in mind, they're probably trying to deliver a good service to you. You want them to help you and whatever your frustration might be when you're talking to that vendor, 
um, when you're talking to support is not the time to give vent to that frustration. So what about, I want to try not to use names, but it's going to feel yeah. like people are, people are going to guess there's a vendor out there in the IT world that is almost universally hated. Charles, you may know who may know who I'm talking about, but a lot I've of gotta be honest, I don't feel like that narrows it down all that much. But um, <laughs> go on. <laughs> there are there are a couple. There are a couple. I know there's there's one that I, I never had to deal with them directly, but folks like your database team might be, um, and it always feels like this company's goal is to bleed as much money out of you as they can, right? So, in a case like that. Right? Are you justified in treating the the sales guy who you know feels smarmy and feels like he's trying to sell you a used car with the odometer rolled back? Um, are you justified in treating them poorly? Because <laughs> you really want to, don't you? Well, look, justify's got nothing to do with it. It's a question of professionalism. I've always joked that there's one vendor in particular, a different vendor, that if I was ever walking out of the profession forever, I'd stand up on a stage somewhere and just read them the ride act and tell them exactly how I felt about them. But um, that's not a good headspace to be in. And, but, you know, you bring up an interesting distinction there. You know, you support people, like their support, their sales. Um, and I think it's important when you're talking to a vendor to also remember, like, who am I talking to here? Like, am I talking to tier one, tier two support? Am I talking to an engineer or am I being sold something? And I'm not saying that so you know whether you can get away with treating somebody disrespectfully. I don't think there's ever, ever any cause for that. Yeah. But it's remember figuring out, um, it's about figuring out like if I have gnarly technical problems, um, the most the salesperson is probably going to be able to do for me is like, okay, I'll take that back to our engineering team. Um, and so, you know, you have the appropriate conversation. Whereas if you've got a grievance about your, what you're paying your vendor, you don't bring that up with support. You, you have a sales rep or you have somebody who is responsible for sales for your account. You bring it up with them. Right. So you'd be like, Hey, we're not getting, we're not getting value for money. Um, and I'd like to know, and we're not happy and I'd like to know what, what you're going to do about that. So there's definitely a line there between the sales team that walks in and tries to pick your pocket or doesn't right <laughs> in the example I was using, it always or felt doesn't. that way. Um, and then of course the, the folks who have to support the product they sold you. Right. So that's that's, you know, sort of a great segue into the other side of this conversation, which is once you've signed that contract, you're still dealing with the vendor. Of course, you still have that sales team to deal with. Maybe you don't like them. Maybe they smell funny. Maybe you don't like, you know, you feel dirty every time you talk to them. But there's still a team of people that write the software that you purchased, assuming it's software. Maybe it's a service. Right. Uh, that, that support the product that you purchased. How's that? Um, and. I've been on both sides of the support conversation, right? Where it's, you know, I'm the guy answering the phone. In my case, it was at an ISP. So people were, were paying for dial-up internet service, which was finicky to begin with, right? Because it's dial-up. Uh, usually when people call you, they're already at the end of their rope. They're angry or they're upset because the thing's not working the way it's supposed to. Or 
you know, in the case of enterprise support for some big product, uh, whatever it is, or some big service that they're paying for, uh, it could be that they're actually losing money by the second, right? Like things can get that dire or people's lives could be at risk, right? In the case of like hospitals and things, you got a big enough outage there and people could literally die. So, you know, you've got a customer who's just already stressed out, already got, you know, management breathing down his neck, or, you know, maybe he's just calling up his ISP for a problem and, you know, his wife can't uh, look at her cat pictures or whatever. There's pressures there. Um, from the from the customer perspective, right, you got to keep in mind that the person you're talking to at the other end, they're just there to help you. You know, they're, they're there to try to solve your problem. And um, I don't know, I... I can't say I can remember a case where I'm guilty of doing that myself, you know, sort of attacking a support rep. Uh, maybe, probably more on the customer service side of things. I, I can recall cases where, you know, it's like, you know, I'm calling my cell phone provider and they're not getting along with me, right? <laughs> so, yeah, like I spent a number of years on a tier one help desk at a previous job mm -hmm. and... I definitely had a lot, of, there were definitely a lot of times where before I could really start to work on somebody's problem, I needed to first get them down to a simmer because they were really frustrated, they were upset. And so, you know, it's like, so I can't work the problem until I've talked them down off the ledge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing for support to do, but ideally you don't have to do it. And fortunately I was in a position where I could take the time to do that. You know, I wasn't following a script and I tended to actually have at least a passing acquaintance with the person I was talking to over the phone, which helped me talk them down to a server. But, you know, I mean, not always. Maybe as a student, somebody I didn't know. And yeah. so on the reverse side of that, I've tried to be very conscious of having been in that position, having taken those calls and how I'd want to be treated. So if I'm calling customer support for some reason, um, you know, I'm going to have the, you know, I, have, I put on my kind of call my customer service voice or uh, my coworker, Tim, who has heard it, has told me that it is just honestly the most surprising thing he's ever heard just because he just, it's totally so different. And it's almost like this sweetness and light. And he's like, man, that's not you. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be a little yeah. cynical, but you know, if I'm talking, but look, I mean, again, you're, you're calling customer service. These are your partners. They, they don't necessarily want to hear from you, but if they're going to hear from you, they want to try to help you and why make it harder? Yeah. And that's a pretty valid point, right? So, and I, I know exactly what you mean by that voice, the, the, the tone you get, because I'm pretty sure I have a similar one when I'm talking, especially to an irate customer, right? Um, you know, you, 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 you kind of lose the maybe joking manner that you might have had you kind of you lose all that and you go straight to like a professional tone and there's a more of a calming aspect to it right than a then you, you might got to figure you got to figure out if you can get away with levity with um with this person yeah right right so you got to go down to baseline <laughs> and uh yeah so but yeah it's that's that's a very valid i mean i i can remember calls back in those call center days where, you know, I, I didn't know any of these people. And if you knew them, it was a bad thing, right? Because these weren't people <laughs> I worked with. It was people, if you knew them, it was because they call a lot, 
<laughs> they're one of those folks. And um, I can remember a couple where it was really, you know, they weren't calling to have a problem solved. They were calling to yell at somebody. And you happened to be the guy that was unfortunate enough to pick up the phone. And that was never fun. You know, you can disconnect from yourself from that all you want, saying, telling yourself it's not you they're yelling at, it's the company, right? But the bottom line is sometimes those people will then elevate it if you don't answer properly. If, if you don't, you know, if you just sit there and take it, that might not be enough for them. They want you to do something. And if you don't do the right thing, they could go to your supervisor. They could go to your boss or whatever. You could end up losing your job one of the, over one of these people. Now, you know, you could argue a decent boss wouldn't uh, go that far, but it is possible, right? Especially in a call mm -hmm. center where people... I feel like people are viewed as almost disposable in certain call centers. Now, obviously, when you get higher up that chain, it's not not like that because you need a certain skill set to do this. But anyway, I'm kind of rambling. <laughs> I went down. I remember, no, I, no, no. <laughs> but I remember having I can remember having a call at that tier one job that was so unpleasant that when it was over first. Um, I was like, OK, I need somebody to spell me on the phone for like 10 minutes. because I just had to go take a walk to get it out of my system. Mm hmm. And then I went to see my boss and be like, yo, so I had this call and they were mad. It's like, just so he knows, like yeah. he was a great boss. He'd back us up, but he doesn't like getting blindsided. So it's like, you know, you either tell him now or you wait for the person to possibly yell at him. And then he comes to be like, okay, so what happened? Um, you know, make sure he's equipped to deal with whatever's coming down the pike. So like, I don't want to be the person causing that situation. But at the same time, there is a question of accountability. So like, here's an example. We have a vendor. Uh, this is a vendor that I'd be really tempted to flame um, if I ever walked out of the profession. And we've been having some problems with this vendor because frankly, they're just have they're having problems and that's translated into lengthening support times that are well outside the SLA. And like, we don't have to take that, right? But so I've been, so I've been polite as you like to the actual support people. But then, you know, when you get those post support surveys, we're like, hey, how do we do? Um, you know, that's the opportunity to indicate, yeah, well, it took y'all a month to turn around something that really should have been trivial. And we had users that were broken in that span and I'm not happy about it and it's not acceptable. Right. You know, cold, yeah, I mean, and polished, but but it's like not going to get you ten out of ten for actually fixing it because you should have fixed it in, in like well, it shouldn't have broken at all, and having broken, it shouldn't have taken over a month to fix. Yeah, like I get it, it happens, but I mean, from the support perspective, though, sometimes those things that appear to be a very simple fix, you know, it's a very complex thing to find the simple thing. I was just on a call yesterday. I don't, mm -hmm. in, in the role I'm in, I don't generally spend all day on, on phone calls with customers. Um, you know, it's usually check-ins and short conversations and advice and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. when one of my customers has a real problem, uh, they're generally working with support to fix the problem, but I'll be there as sort of an extra set of eyes and whatever. And I spent yesterday on, on, on a single phone call for about six hours trying to find a problem. And it was a real 
It was difficult to solve. Even the support engineer, who you'd argue was a specialist, where I'm more of a generalist, right? He was a specialist in the particular thing that was broken. Uh, even he was feeling kind of stumped, right? And it turned out to be that the customer had defined a thing in the right way, but in the wrong place. And that's what mm. was causing the problem, right? And it took us like an hour or two the evening before and five or six hours yesterday to find that thing, right? <laughs> so um, in the end, it was solved. It took way longer than you'd think it would have, right? Because it was just one setting that had to be moved from one place to another and boom, it was fixed, right? Right. So, you know, that customer could say, why did it take so long? But instead they were grateful that we finally found it because they realized that it was a compl complex thing that had a simple solution. Just finding mm -hmm. that solution was the hard part, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's a thing to keep in mind when you're, yeah. when, you're when you're dealing with a vendor, when you're dealing with support specifically, right? They don't know what you've done. They don't know your environment. And if you're dealing with a thing that is complex, now, I don't know, maybe the thing you're talking about is like a black box that they've provided the whole thing. I don't know, but. No, I think your example is valid. Um, and that's a valid example of why something that seems like it should have been simple took a while. Um, this is the counter example of something that was simple, should have been fixed clear, fixed quickly, but it's just a, um, it's a situation where support is just so overtaxed that the, um, response time stretched to infinity. Yeah. And that's, that's a real thing. Having seen both sides of this coin, sometimes it might feel like your support reps at vendor X are doing everything they can to make sure that they just barely meet SLA. Um, there's a lot more going on there. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's all I can really say about it, because I, I don't want to get too inside baseball here. But there's a lot going on, and it's not just that they're doing their bare minimum to meet the SLA. It's that they have a lot of other things going on, right? Or maybe they're on a six-hour phone call with, <laughs> with some yeah. other with some other customer right uh because work you know the, the flow of cases and tickets and stuff and phone calls don't stop when your support people are tied up on phone calls they just keep mm -hmm. coming in and that's why those slas are there and they're a very tricky balancing act to make sure you get them right so that customers aren't waiting too long you're meeting expectations and you're not missing your slas you know so yeah yeah no it's it's like you think about all the craziness you see in your own workplace and mm -hmm. you have to think, I never, you never see it, but our vendor, their workplace, all those little dramas are playing out there too. So you don't know what's going on what they're going through. Right. And as hard as it can be, you got to have, you know, these are your partners. You've got to have some empathy even if you feel like you're not getting any back. Yeah. Yeah. Now, believe me, I know it's frustrating. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to judge anybody else for, uh, for how they're handling their vendors, but yeah, it's definitely, you know, you got to put yourself in that headspace where the, the people on the other end of the phone or the, the sales team that just came to greet you or whatever, they're people and they've got deadlines and they've got budgets and they've got a family to feed at the end of the day, I assume. Right. Unless they're loners, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But uh or independently wealthy and they just do this for the fun. 
But uh, this actually, speaking of budgets and deadlines and whatnot, it brings me to, to another point that I've seen a little, little bit of contention around. What about the vendor lunch? Like, how do you feel I, about the... I hope we get to have another one someday. Yeah, um, right, right. Today, it's hard to say that. But I mean, in the before time and hopefully in the after time, <laughs> if we all get that far, you know, vendor calls you, you know, maybe it's a blind call on a Thursday afternoon. Hey, we want to come out and show you our product. Uh, do you try to get them to take you to lunch, or is that rude? Like I've I've worked with people where it's like, okay, if you're going to take up my time, you're getting me lunch, right? And they'll be kind of blunt about it. They'll be completely upfront. Hmm. It's just like, you know, if you're going to come do this, you're going to get me lunch because they know that a sales team has a budget for stuff like that, so they'll leverage that and try to get what they can out of it. Now, is is that bad? Because, I mean, sales teams get a big budget for that kind of stuff. And sales teams, I've, I've worked with sales teams that really love to do that. I mean, it's a vendor you guys might still have some dealings with. He would come to the college because he liked the food. <laughs> he liked the food in Easton. I don't think he ever bought me lunch. but um, Well, you didn't work directly with him. It was a systems thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really of a couple minds about that. Um I've certainly, I've certainly had vendor lunch. Um, I don't think there's anything inappropriate about that, but demanding lunch. I mean, yes, obviously the vendor has a budget for that, but uh, I guess I would feel that I was making some kind of moral commitment, however minor, um, to taking the pitch more seriously. Right. And maybe, maybe a lot of people wouldn't feel that way, but like I had a vendor who was actually willing, they weren't local, but they were willing to come out to where we are and like make a pitch to some VPs for a particular product. And I'm like, Whoa, Whoa, slow down, fella. We're not even committing to, right. We're not committing to anything. You guys want to fly out here? Um, and I guess that's just classic hard sell, but it makes me a little uncomfortable. Yeah, right. So part of that, you're, you're right. It's, it's, um, they feel like if they are physically present and you feel like they've given you something, you may be more, uh, more apt to buy their product, right? It, it makes me feel weird sometimes when I'm at conferences because I'll be chatting with vendors and having a nice conversation and I'll be thinking, crap, I'm not making a moral commitment here, am I? Am I wasting their time? Because I'm not buying their product. I know I'm not buying their product. Yeah. I don't exactly want to walk over and be like, hi, I'm not buying your stuff. But let's, because it's, vendors know a lot of things. Um, I've learned a lot from vendors, even when I haven't bought their products. Um, you know, find out maybe what other schools are doing. Um, they're interesting people to talk to. But chances are I'm not buying what you're selling. I mean, I've, especially at, at trade shows or at conferences, I've spent considerable amounts of time talking to vendors just because I think their product is neat, right? Just to learn about it, just to figure out what it's about. Even if I'm in no way either not, not in a position where I could buy it, uh, the technology isn't something that would be at all beneficial to you know my workplace or if I know there's no budget for it, right? Um, 
you know, and I'll take their little plushie or whatever they're giving away on their table, right? Because I think they expect oh, those sure. to vanish. Um, but even that, I'll sometimes when I'm, you know, when you're walking away from it, you're like, I just took 15 minutes of that guy's time where he could have been. Oh, geez. As a <laughs> that that is the perfect the per that's like the epitome of exactly what I'm describing. Oh, it even has so, my sequel uh, on the other side. So, so yeah, folks, so podcasting is visual yeah, medium. <laughs> I was I was laughing for the, uh, yeah, for the benefit so I... of the folks on the stream, but <laughs> go ahead, describe what you're holding up to the camera, Charles. Yeah, this is a little kind of. So, this is a dolphin. Uh, this is an Oracle MySQL dolphin that I got at the U.S. Moodle Moot. Uh, I guess about six years ago, which was. Um, pretty early on in the days of Oracle having MySQL. And what's funny is we were just about to make the jump to MariaDB, but uh, I got the got the plushie anyway. Got an, an Oracle plushie. Yeah. Got an Oracle MySQL <laughs> plushie. Which is perfect because, well, I know I wasn't going to say any names, but that's the vendor! <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Oh, we can take that out. So, uh, so yeah, the um, I'm being whale, advised no, this might be a whale. Josh, I don't um, think it's a. Is it a whale? Because wasn't didn't I don't know if they still do, but didn't MySQL use dolphins as their their logo for a while? It's got to be a dolphin. I'm gonna Google this while you argue, Chad. Yes, it's a dolphin. There you go. Um, it's a dolphin. Google said so. Um, <laughs> So anyway, yeah, um, I've had plenty of lunches at vendors' expense. Uh, I've had plenty of nice meals at vendors' expense at conferences and whatnot, but they've always been things that uh, wasn't my suggestion. You know what I mean? It was yeah. the vendor showed up. We asked them when they could be there. They're like, 1130. <laughs> and they show up at 1130. Let's get food. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Because it's, you know, it's it's the way that they kick things off. They like to, you know, soften the, the crowd up by giving them pizza or wherever, right? Some, maybe some alcohol. <laughs> and then, uh, then it well, goes from there. And that's, and that's not just, um, and of course, that's any industry. You know, I do that academic conference work on the side. And Saturday night, there's just all these parties with free wine. And it's typically like publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, you know, somebody's got a book out or a new journal's being launched and, uh, you know, people are just coming to have a drink and find out about it, but mostly have a drink. Yeah. But, you know, there'll be some amount, you know, they'll do some business from it and it's good publicity. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really what those are about. But yeah, so I, you know, I'm not saying people should feel bad about accepting things from vendors. Unless they're in an industry where they're not where they're not allowed to accept things from vendors, which I see sometimes because it could be perceived as a bribe. I don't know if you've you've ever okay. dealt with anyone that's in that kind of an industry, but uh, if you're not obligated to refuse such things, you know if they're if they're giving you something, go ahead and take it. But I don't know. I feel like the people who suggest it, you know what I mean? Like they're, you know, I'm not going to listen to you unless you get me lunch. That always feels like it's a shady thing to do, you know. Yeah, and yeah. 
So I don't know what else can we go into with dealing with vendors. I don't really. I think we've covered we've covered a lot of aspects. We we kind of rabbit trailed around there a bit. <laughs> but I yeah, think uh, I, okay, I think the yeah I think the thing I would just go back to is this idea that um, I think this is true even of open source projects. But um, you know, or maybe you're just using something, but you know, and I described vendors as being your partners. Um, you know, you don't want to you don't want to push that too far. Like if you're using an open source project and you're dependent on it, that doesn't mean you can turn around and go to the maintainers and be like, "Yo, you got to help me fix this," because I mean, that's just not how that works. Yeah. But at the same time, you need to think about you know, with any anything you're working with, how do I feel about this product? How do I feel about the support around it? Do I feel like if I have a question, I'm going to get an answer in a reasonable amount of time and it's going to be a good answer? And what can I do to say, what can I do to set my vendor up for success? Like if I know, for example, uh, we have one vendor that if you report a bug to them, you know that the first thing they're going to do is turn around and ask for a horror file demonstrating the problem, which fine. Like that's a totally reasonable thing to ask for. Mm -hmm. So with that particular vendor, we've just gone into the habit when we open support tickets we just supply a hard file. Yeah. You know, it saves a loop because we know they want one. And sometimes it means we've got an immediate turnaround because they had all the tools they need yeah. to solve the problem. It's, it's the same thing. If you open a case with Cisco, they want a TAC report. Uh, or not tech. Is that what tech tech show show tech? Yeah, show tech. They want a tech report. Um, you know, when you open a uh, when we had that that IBM storage device, when you opened a case, they wanted I forget what they called it, but it was it was the same thing, a log collector or something. I forget what it was called. Um, uh -huh. And with Red Hat support, when you open up a case, there's automation that will immediately say, "Send us an SOS report." You know, oh, cool. even even if you think it's not, even if the person opening the case thinks thinks they're not going to need it, it it happens. You know, I don't know if there's some intelligence in there that, uh, you know, that it won't demand one in certain cases, but usually that's the first thing we'll ask somebody for. And in fact, as a TAM, when I see one of my customers open a case, I, the first thing I look for is if there's an SOS report. And unless I think it's absolutely unnecessary, that's the first thing I'm doing is telling them, hey, go put an SOS report on there because they're going to ask you for it. <laughs> Because it's just, you know, it's important. Mm -hmm. So I think I have one other topic came to mind, and then I think we're going to move along. But um, what about consultants? Like, that's a whole other area mm. of vendor, right? I've dealt with consultants that were a complete pleasure to work with because they knew their stuff, and they were working their way through problems, and you'd work hand-in-hand -hand with them, and they did their job really well. I've worked with other consultants that just made your life hell because they didn't seem to know what they were doing or they didn't seem to grasp the environment you were in or whatever. How do you deal with that? <laughs> there was a there was a project, I think it was before your time at the college. Uh, you would know it if I mentioned it, but I don't think I want to mention it on mm -hmm. here. But it was managed... Um, I don't know where the consultants came from, if they came from the company that wrote the software or not, but they had sold us this piece of software and then it needed customizations. 
like a lot of software, right? There's there's like a base, and then they send out a team of of, of experts, quote unquote experts, to uh, make sure that they then craft the product to do what you want, like like Salesforce, right? Nobody nobody just buys Salesforce and uses it if you're a big enough company. You buy Salesforce and then you customize it to fit your your workflows, right? Same same concept, right? These guys came out. And, you know, it was an on-prem solution because it was in the days before cloud was really a big thing. Um, so there were servers to install. There were firewall ports to open. And you know how complicated the network could have been there at the college. There were, there were like network firewalls in the way that had to be opened and, you know, whatever, modified and whatever. And there were just all these challenges. And every time we turned one way or the other, it's like these consultants had no idea. They knew their product, but they had like no concept at all about the world of IT outside. But then, you know, there's other consultants I've worked with, like when, I mean, I don't want to talk too highly of Red Hat, but it's the only other real experience I have with a consultant. We had a Red Hat consultant on site for two weeks to rebuild our rev infrastructure after the incident that shall not be named. And he was on point. Like anything we threw at him, he was just like, bang, bang, bang. He got it. He went right through it, right? So I don't know. I don't want to just like, go on about how some cons some consultants can be terrible but um like oh, how no, do you... and i've had the same yeah i've had the same experience you have people who really knew what they were doing um who were a real net positive and then people who just seemed like they whatever their technical competence maybe didn't didn't have it weren't cognitive of the wider issues didn't understand how the business functioned and uh <clears throat> like didn't understand, for example, why it might be disruptive to take a core system down in the middle of the day. Um, like maybe why that shouldn't be done, or at least not done without warning. And uh, right, without warning, <laughs> that's, that's tough, right? I mean, there, there is something different about consultants. Maybe because it can't, it's not always completely obvious what the scope of their work is and who they're working for and why they're there. Like with vendors, I feel like there these things are maybe a bit better understood. There's a little more control, but if a consultant's there to just do an implementation, that's pretty straightforward. If the consultant's there to observe and make a recommendation, that's tricky. Like, what is the actual scope of their responsibilities? Um, and they, they won't necessarily be clear to you. Um, and I think the simplest answer is cooperate. Um, take notes, be polite, and try to figure out how you can best help them. Because as irritating as some consultants are, it does nobody any good if they're unhappy and they're not being successful. Um, you know, you want to help them do their job. Right. Even if they have no idea what that job is. Right. And I, I know you have a consultant in mind that didn't work well. <laughs> oh, I, actually I do, but not somebody, not somebody you ever worked with. Um, oh, really? I was thinking of one that we worked uh, with together at the college. We'll have to discuss off air. I'm not sure who you're thinking of, but uh, no, this is in a previous job. Um, I don't know if his name still strikes terror into the hearts of the people there. It's been a long time. A lot of them probably don't remember him, but uh, that was pretty horrifying. This one was named anyway, after yeah. 
This one that I'm thinking of was named named after a certain popular Ghostbuster. Yeah, but you see, he wasn't a consultant. He was a vendor. Oh, really? I thought he was classified as consultant. I guess you're right. Okay. He was more of a vendor. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> yes. Um, <laughs> but even there, you know, we did everything we could to help um, him and his company um, because they were working with us and we wanted them to, we wanted that project to be successful. And it was in the end, but um, there were definitely some speed bumps. Yep. All right. Well, folks, if you think we missed anything or think we got anything wrong, please feel free to reach out and let us know. I think we're going to move along into a short break and then we will be back with our usual chat. So just remember, folks, treat your vendors nicely. They are partners. Charles said so. When the girls get coding, join us on your screens October 13th for the Live at Manning Women in Tech Conference to celebrate the rising movement of women in technology. Check the show notes of this show for a link to more information. All right, folks, welcome back. We don't have any transition music to play, so it always feels weird, like it was very anticlimactic. I guess I could play it anyway, right? <laughs> so here we are back again. Um, we'll go through our announcements and stuff, and then we'll go through our chat, and then we'll get into the news. There was some pretty cool news, maybe not cool, pretty interesting news to talk about today. Uh, so I'm kind of looking forward to getting into that. So uh, first things first, I wanted to thank our patrons. As always, we've got... I've remembered to collect the list today, even though I've forgotten on some previous shows. Let me get this in front of me so I can actually read it to you without looking off screen. So we've got 18 patrons for roughly 80 bucks a month. Thank you to all of you. Your names are Robert, Matt, David, Solemn with the three and the zero and stuff. Erwin, Trooper Ish, Linux Sys666, Gimpy B, Ryan, Mark with a K, Dementor from PowerShell on Linux. John, Mark with a C, Julius, Andy, Jay, and Charles. What a coincidence. There's a guy named Charles right here on the show. I wonder if it's the same Man. guy. <laughs> so thank you to all of you. Much appreciated. Um, oh, I, I had the numbers in front of me. I forgot to put those into the notes, but uh, it was... Oh, and he's not here. How did I miss that one? Uh, our longest patron, 22532... Somehow did not get put into the notes, but I'm going to add him right now. Uh, for the longest time, he was our top contributor. Uh, but some time ago, he lowered his uh, contribution, and he's no longer the top contributor. He's still the longest, though, and that's still appreciated. Um, so the trophy moves to, I think it was Jay, actually, is now the top contributor. I'll have to check again. Not that I care. I don't care how much, how much people have given me. I just thought it was a fun little statistic to throw in there. We sold a couple more shirts, I noticed today, so thank you folks for going to teespring.com slash stores slash ironsysadmin. You can buy shirts and stickers and mugs there to support the show, and because I thought it might be fun, I've made a promo code for you guys. Anyone listening to this show, within the next two weeks, so for 14 days, this, this code will be active. In fact, it's still 1023, so it'll go just beyond our next show. 
If you use the code ISAOCT, so Iron Sys Admin October, ISAOCT 2020, you can get 10% off on our Teespring shop. So if you've been waiting to buy an Iron Sys Admin shirt or mug or sticker, now is the time. Go use the code. Have fun. Enjoy your 10% off. I want to call out the uh, Live at Manning Women in Tech Conference. It's coming up. I think it's the 15th. It should be right here in front of me. It was right in front of me. Now it's gone. Dang. 15th, 13th, something like that. Go look it up. <laughs> We've been supporting them for the past couple of weeks. So if you haven't noticed it, then um, I don't know what you've been doing. But uh, yes, yeah, October 13th. There it is. Sorry. So go check that out. Um, I did not get to check out Rust Conference, but I think I am going to try to check out their Women in Tech Conference. Um, you know, they are, they're basically listing us as a sponsor in exchange for promoting it, and I think it's a pretty good good uh, good idea to have this conference. So, and the last bit of announcements that we have, and I meant to bring this up on our last show because it dropped the news just dropped about a day or two before our last show. You folks might remember that we had interviewed an author from Manning on the show two, three months ago. Charles, I think you were there on the show. Chuck Gaiman, remember he wrote the AWS book? Yep. He uh, unfortunately passed away. Huh. He'd, he'd been hit with... The only details they released, and, and Manning sent me an email about it because uh, we had taken advantage of that... Uh, what do they call it? Meep, the Meep version of his book where he was he was releasing a couple chapters at a time. Um, I had taken advantage of that, you know, to see the book and whatever. So they sent me an update saying that the meet was canceled. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of weird. Why did they cancel it? And then they said it's because he had been hit with a rare and fast moving cancer. And I guess it was a very quick thing because we, we, won't, we only saw him, what was it, three months ago? We interviewed him. Might have been July. Yeah, not long ago. And he seemed fine then, right? And there was no indication that he was ill. Absolutely. So... You know, my heart goes out to his family, um, and it's it's a shame. Uh, his book will never be finished. And uh, according to the, uh, the the notes that they had included with that email, this that that book was just sort of like his life at the time, and it's really a shame that it's not going to get finished. But this happens. So sad, sad news. So moving along into reviews, uh, I went and looked up, when I was looking for reviews for the show tonight, I thought it'd be really cool if there was some kind of a review aggregation service. So I don't have to go here and there and the other place to look up reviews every week because that tends to be a problem. You'll always miss one or did I review, did I read that one already or not? Whatever. Um, and I found this service, uh, it's called Ratings Catcher. I don't know, I'm trying it out. It may be crap. Uh, but one thing they do, or they advertise anyway, is, um, I didn't know this, but on Apple Podcasts, if somebody in a country that is not yours, so in ex for an example, uh, if you're in the UK and you review the show, when I go to look at the show to look for reviews, they don't show me your review, which seems silly because you think as the owner of the show, they'd want to show me the reviews, but they don't. Uh, what this service does is it'll it'll pull in those reviews as well as all the U.S. reviews. So I should get all of them now. And because of that, I actually found two reviews that I don't remember us ever reading on the show. So I thought I'd read them tonight. <laughs> One of them is from uh, a uh, 
uh, a viewer that I've seen on our live stream several times. So uh, if you've never heard your uh, your review read on the show, you're going to get to hear it tonight. <laughs> All right. So our first review is from Trooper Ish, who's been in our chat several times on our live show. Um, he says, these admins rock. Oh, it's a five-star review. It says, he calls out you specifically, Charles. He must like you. Charles, Nate, and the must, other must be a listener from Must be a long-time listener. Yeah, right. <laughs> Haven't right. been on in a bit. Well, I mean, this was from back in uh, July. So maybe you were on more frequently before July. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Charles, Nate, and their, and their co-hosts. Um, really rock. Uh, really rock the news and events uh, in the systems world uh, with... Uh, Sorry, I'm having trouble reading tonight. With a nice leaning towards open source slash Nix, but updates in general tech goings on are abound. So thank you, Trooper Ish. We appreciate the uh, uh, the review. And I, I assume you're in the UK because that's what this review service told me you're, <laughs> you're from. So uh, thanks. And the other one is from Sabertooth604. And this is from all the way back. In August of 2019, that is in the before time, <laughs> when the world was still kind of normal. Uh, and Sabertooth604 says, useful info and entertaining. Uh, I listen to Iron Sissiman on, on a regular basis. This podcast contains useful, relevant information covering a plethora of subjects. Nate, Jason, Dustin, and others. Sorry, Charles. <laughs> Def, uh, de definitely I'll take it personally <laughs> entertaining view on information technology thanks and keep up the good work and this one says he's from Canada so um, I, I imagine he's riding a moose and eating some Canadian bacon right now do people in Canada eat Canadian bacon do they even call it that or is it just bacon I guess it's just bacon <laughs> bad Canada jokes that's why people come to Iron Sissiman right <laughs> let's get some loaded up and that's all i've got for reviews i'm sure if jason were here he would tell us about b-size delaware and whatever progress they've made uh in their virtual conference but uh you're just gonna have to pretend that he read that off because he didn't make it tonight and otherwise that's about all i got Except for the fact that my freaking debit card has been compromised again. This is the third time this year. I don't know what the hell I'm doing wrong. Folks, if you have any way to help prevent debit card theft or credit card theft, <laughs> let me know. Uh, I'm trying out a service. Well, sounds to me Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say it sounds to me like you got local trouble. Maybe somebody's uh, maybe somebody's skimming cards. That's kind of what I'm thinking. <laughs> And I, I don't know what I can do to avoid that, um, other than be a little more vigilant, I suppose, when it, whatever I put my card into, right? Um, I make it a point to use uh, contactless payment, like uh, uh, Android Pay or whatever, from my phone, uh, which I have the impression is more secure, because there's nothing to scam at that point, except I suppose the ID that's read via NFC from your phone. Um, but I don't know if that's actually any better or not. I assume it is because there's not an ex actually an exchange of card data at that point. So if, if it's the card data that they're using, you know, um, it's got to that must have been read off of that stripe, you know, off, off of a swipe. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if there's a gas station near me that's got a skimmer on it or what. 
but or if I'm just making very poor choices on online shopping. The last time this happened, I actually went to the extent of, uh, because obviously I had to go back and re-enter my card in a bunch of things that I have recurring payments coming out of, like Netflix and whatever. Um, but every one of them that let me do it, I switched them to using PayPal. And now it <laughs> PayPal through, you know, through PayPal into my account instead of using the, the card number. So I thought, well, that'll, that should lower the surface a bit, right? Um, but of course, there were some vendors, some whatever's services that I couldn't do that with that just didn't accept PayPal. So I had to put the card number back in. So this time around, what I'm doing is for those folks, I'm using a service called privacy.com, which is basically they're like burner card numbers. They'll generate you a card number. You link it to a funding source of some sort. Uh, in my case, it's linked to my checking account. And uh, whenever you go to make a payment, you can generate a new card number per service. And you can even make them temporary. Like this card will only work for two days or this card will work for so many transactions or something like that. You can even set spending limits on the damn things, right? So I can say uh, my Netflix bill is whatever, 15 bucks a month. So this card is only for Netflix and it only allows like $15.50 a month. So if anybody tries to make a charge beyond Netflix, uh, it'll not go through, right? So that's what I'm trying out. We're gonna see if that uh, if that helps the problem. At the very least, it should tell me for certain if it's if it was an online transaction that got me or if it was a skimmer, because I'm still gonna have to physically use the card for places like gas, right? And Josh is in the chat here saying he only uses cash at gas stations. I suppose I can go that far. Um, that might be a pain in the butt, though. <laughs> but I guess for the sake of uh, not getting my card stolen again, maybe it's worth it. But uh, but yeah, so we'll see how it goes. Um, I don't know. I did, in my um, sort of investigation into skimmers to figure out like how to spot a skimmer, I found this thing called Blutana. And it's an app that was designed by, what was this, uh, UCSD San Diego? Is that what that means? Yes, UC San Diego. They developed this app that's basically, so most skimmers, um, I, I assume people listening to the show might know what a skimmer is. Maybe I shouldn't make that assumption. Uh, a skimmer is basically a device that a bad guy will clip over top of the card reader on things like Mac machines or gas pumps, things that a lot of people stick their cards into. And what it does is before it lets, maybe not before, but as your your card is being read by the gas pump, for example, it's also being read by the skimmer. The skimmer has its own magnetic reader in it. And the data that's on that strip, it stores in a chip on the skimmer, right? And then bad guy will come by later and collect all of the information that was gathered by the skimmer onto their phone or something. Now. Obviously, it would look kind of weird if every three days this guy showed up and plugged his phone into the, the card reader on the gas pump. Plus, it makes it a little easier to spot because there's now a plug on the side of the card reader. Uh, so they usually use a Bluetooth chip. And then you have your phone paired to the Bluetooth, and then it just reads the data in while you're pumping gas, right? And then off you go. Um, so UCSD has created an app that looks for these devices because they're usually, they found that most of them are using the same chip, um, the same Bluetooth, uh, you know, radio 
And most of these criminals are lazy, so they just basically leave the name the way it was, and they leave the password the way it was, and then this thing looks for that, right? And then if it sees it, it it'll alert you uh, before, you know, so you can scan the pump or whatever. The problem is, it sounds like a really cool app, right? Like, wouldn't that be a great thing to be able to carry around on your phone and check out a gas pump or an ATM machine before you stick your card into it? It's for law enforcement only. I don't get that. <laughs> Like, why? Why Why can't the average Joe protect themselves? Why is it for law? Like, I get it. Law enforcement wants to be able to scan for this stuff. But why can't they make a version? Maybe there's something in it that is is unsafe for the general public. But why can't they make a version that, that you know, average Joe user can put on their phone and, and protect themselves as well? Uh, I don't get that. But so it kind of makes me curious. And that's really the, the main reason I talked about that particular thing on the show is, does anybody out there have... Because uh, if you look at the Google Play market, there are a bunch of supposed Bluetooth skimmer scanners. All of them look like hoaxes. <laughs> so I'm curious if anybody has one that they've used and they work and works and they trust. And if you do, I'd like to hear about it because I think it's a thing I'd like to learn a little more about and maybe even have on my phone so that I can, uh, you know, look for these things. I think that's everything I had to talk about. I'm just really friggin' aggravated at this. <laughs> and once again, my bank was great. I didn't lose any money, you know, and the, the one charge that came through, they were refunding for me. So it's like, it's really just a hassle. It's really, really just kind of sucks. So anyway, Charles, have you had any cards stolen lately? Or anything else fun to talk it about? <laughs> Haven't had any cards stolen. Just um, me, I guess. I just uh, I gotta stop using my my debit card at strip clubs, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, I would certainly be one approach. I'm not going to tell you how to live <laughs> your life. Um, so, uh, so I'm I'm building a new model layout, um, and uh, model railroad layout. And one thing I'm going to be doing with this is actually implementing uh, DCC, which is a digital command control. So, <clears throat> isn't command I control think, a bad thing? Isn't that that thing uh, that not, affects all my servers? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but but different. Um, different. Okay. So, your typical model railroad is. And I, I mean, I am not strong on electricity in general, but like, so your typical model railroad is just straight up DC. You've got a transformer, you've got uh, wires going from the transformer to the tracks, one wire on one track, one wire on the other, power goes to the tracks, and uh, power is your locomotive, train goes around in a circle. Um, you know, if you've got a train that just goes under a tree, that's what it's doing, unless it's uh, battery operated. Right. But... The, um, the uh, big limitation of that approach is if you want to run, say, two locomotives at once, and you don't want them to potentially hit each other, um, with a straight-up DC layout, what you'd have to do is you use insulators to basically block the, um, essentially set up electrical districts or blocks. So you just isolate sections from each other, and then you have switches and multiple transformers. So you can be like, okay, this transformer is controlling this part of the layout, this transformer is controlling this part of the layout, 
and then you can run two trains. But that doesn't scale particularly well. So with um, digital command controller DCC, um, you ba instead of the normal transformer, you have, you're basically sending both power and signals through the tracks, and then the locomotive has a decoder. So you'd be like, okay, so here's my controller. So like I have like a remote control that's actually driving the train on the tracks, but the actual track is all just electrified. Um, so whether your train is going faster, so like you're just controlling it in your hand and you can then basically you can run as many locomotives on the track as you have controllers. Now it's still up to you to not crash into somebody, but um, right. you don't have to go through all that extra work of isolating the various um, blocks. So I haven't done that before. That's new to me. Um, so is the goal here to put more than one locomotive on the same set of track? Yeah. That is interesting because you know I, I certainly see the, the problem there, right? Because with the old DC setup, it's just there's power or there's not, right? Various right. levels of power. The different, the higher the amount of current you send in, the faster the train goes. But if you have two locomotives, they may not travel at the same speed, right? So they're going to run into each other. So you can you yeah. can individually control each one at different speeds. Yep. Wow, that's kind of cool. Yep. Um, I guess I just always assumed there'd be no reason to do that. Is there is there a good is it mainly for space savings or like well so the reason you would do that is let's say you have some friends over um you know you could both be running trains on the layout at the same time yeah what we used so to like, do is know, we would just run separate tracks for all, all the different locomotives you know there'd yeah be separate well maybe trains. i don't right but that but from a layout builder you could but then yeah. from a layout builder perspective that would mean that i need to have uh, a double tracked main line um and I'm still going to need two oh, yeah. transformers. It was a wiring mess. You'd have a separate, essentially a separate transformer and circuit for every set of tracks you had. So we would run yeah. up to like four loops when our, when our train set, this is when I was a kid, when our train set mm -hmm. was the largest, we'd have up to, up to like four loops and four separate locomotives and four separate transformers. And yes, it gets to be a bear. Um, yeah, and so the wiring underneath with that is just going to be horrific. Yeah, um, absolutely. So here I still have to run, right, so here I still have to run feeders so that there's a good source of power on the various parts of the layout, but I don't have to worry about isolating blocks mm -hmm. or anything like that. It's kind of neat. Yeah, not that I actually have two DCC-capable locomotives, but um, this That'll is the next, next step. I have one. Yeah, you have um, one. You prove out the, yeah, cool. Yeah. So that that's fun. That, that's a nice um, sideline. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. It certainly sounds interesting. I was just trying to picture in my head why. Like, what problem is, is it you're solving? And it's basically mm -hmm. that you want to be able to run more than one on the same loop, and that's fine. Oh, and I guess the other reason to do it, which I don't really care about, but other people do, is once you've got these DCC decoders on the locomotives, a lot of them have built-in sound chips and speakers, oh. and so you can have realistic locomotive sounds. So can you actually send data across this? Is that essentially what you're doing then? Yes. Yeah, you're basically sending, so you're sending, um, yeah, basically you're sending um, 
you're effectively sending packets through the tracks wow. is what you're doing. That's pretty cool. So, I mean, I would assume that the soundboard on the locomotive would have pre-recorded sounds built into it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And you'd be like, yeah. play sound two. And it would go, okay, sound two. And it would play it. Right. It's not like you're transmitting the sound across the tracks because that Correct. Like, yeah, would it, probably yeah. be terrible. <laughs> yeah. For Yeah. And um, there's especially like some of the bigger gauges you can have quite a bit of variation because there's just more space inside the cab. Mm -hmm. You know, then scale, which I'm modeling at, obviously your options are a little more limited just because tiny, of the, yeah. Yeah, it's the size of the locomotive. That's pretty cool, though. I never worked with N-Gage, but I always thought they were cool. I, I just, I have always, I've always had this fascination with model things that are, like, the smaller they are, within reason, obviously. The smaller they are, the more, mm -hmm. the more I don't know, intricate they seem, and it always seemed cooler. We we I worked think, with HO. I think, yeah. We worked with HO, yeah, and I always thought N was really cool. N's cool. I like N. Whereas I think Z scale is amazing, but I would never try to use it. How big is Z? I don't think I've seen Z. Yeah, Z is the next basically the next size down from N. So N scale. Wow. Oh yeah. So N is typically like N is like one to one sixty. Um, HO is, I think, is 1 to 87. Z scale is uh, 1 to 220. Wow. I'm picturing like micro machines. Remember back in the day? Yeah. No, Z scale cars. is, yeah, <laughs> Z scale is small. Wow. Um, Could you like set yeah. that up on the, on the space of like a desk? It sounds like you could. That's not, that would well, be awesome. Shoot. Well, shoot, you can do that with N. Oh, yeah? Um, okay. I'm just picturing yeah, a train probably... running around my desk now. This, this is going to be awesome. Yeah, because um, I think the, the, the smallest reasonable N full-scale turnaround is you need about 19 inches. Wow. So... That's considerably smaller than my desk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's cool. Mind you, that's a, that's a tight turn, but mm -hmm. it'll do it. That's pretty cool. So you made bread? I did make bread. Is that like the first time uh, ever? Yeah, I'd made bagels, but I had never made bread. Um, it's actually a lot easier than making bagels. I've never made a bagel, but I've made bread. We, yeah. made, we made pasta, too, a couple months back. Ooh. We actually got a pasta maker. and Well, a cutter, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, that's, my mom has one of those. I don't. Um, that's fun. But, yeah, there are a lot of fiddly steps with making bagels. Um, bread's easy. Yeah, well, bread is basically, like, put all the ingredients together. And if, if you've got a stand mixer, it's like, or a bread maker. Forget it. A bread maker, you just toss all the ingredients in and walk away. But, <laughs> but with, uh, my, my wife has one of those KitchenAid stand mixers. She got it like when we got married, which is almost 20 years ago now. And the thing is still working perfectly. So if you get a, get a KitchenAid stand mixer, if you're going to do anything baking wise, cause they're freaking awesome. And they have essentially like, like a PTO port on the front that you can hook up other devices. And that's where, that's what our pasta cutter uh, fits into. But uh, anyway, bread, you can just like throw it into that KitchenAid mixer and put on the bread hook and it just makes you the dough. It'll knead it for you and everything. And then you just throw it into a a pan and cook it, you know, bake it, not cook it, bake it. 
You bake bread. You don't cook bread. I don't know what the difference is, but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's why bakers are bakers and cooks are cooks. And then there's chef, I think is a professional. <laughs> anyway, culinary arts. And are you going to talk about sport ball on our, on our podcast? I know it's a big thing for you. This is my one true vice. College football is back. At least it's college and not pro. I kind of, I kind of hate pro football. <laughs> I like college football for the randomness, like the fact that Tulane is beating Houston by ten right now, and that Tulane's mascot is a giant green wave. How do you even make that a mascot? Uh, well, it goes pretty well on a shirt. You know, you have like a big wave with yeah. eyes. But I'm I'm picturing like how would you dress up somebody as a green wave or or, or can't they do that? I don't know. I or do mean, they have this like um, big cardboard wave? <laughs> why not? I mean, you know, Stanford is the cardinal, which is basically just a color, and Stanford's mascot is this deliberately shoddy tree that parades around on the sideline. Wow. Okay. Yeah, college football is interesting. <laughs> oh, it's wild. <laughs> yeah. No, I just I I mean. Uh, all the political crap aside, I've just felt for pretty much my whole life that pro football is just such uh, excess. Is that the word I'm looking for? They get paid way too much. They're just entertainers. It's all a big act. I feel like they're barely even playing a game, right? Well, it's not as bad as some sports in that respect. But Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, certainly, it's certainly the... better than wrestling. <laughs> I don't know, but wrestling is a little bit more honest about the fact that it yeah. is staged entertainment. Wrestling is at least funny sometimes. You know, pro football is just like... Hey, come on. Pro football can be plenty funny. As anybody who remembers that particular uh, Thanksgiving Day game between the Jets and the Patriots in which Mark Sanchez um, ran into his own lineman's butt can um, well attest. Go Google yeah. butt fumble, kids. Butt fumble? Bug fumble. Sounds like a bad thing to Google. No, it's perfectly safe. Okay. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> uh, well, we can move on. I'll drop um I'll drop a video um into uh Yeah, throw it into the notes or into the chat if you want to. People can watch yeah. it live. <laughs> and with that, I'm gonna move us along into well, I'm gonna hit the button everybody likes to hear me hit the purple button, and we're going to move into the news. So here we go. Cloud navigators and serverless gurus, algorithm sorceresses, and community advocates, we proudly bring you the women creating the tech world we live in. October 13th, live at Manning Women in Tech. Twitch conference. Check the show notes of this podcast for a link where you can find out more. Ever since I started giving uh, Jason a hard time about not knowing the colors of the buttons, some of the viewers are like, the purple button! Which is great. I think it's awesome. People need, you, need, you all need to keep that up. <laughs> All right, so in the news tonight, we've got, I mean, it's its like, I don't know, it, 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 it's funny since we talked about this company earlier on in the, in the, the show, but um, 
how could we not talk about the Oracle versus Google case that's currently hitting the Supreme Court? I guess Wednesday now, uh, the Supreme Court has basically heard the case uh, for Google versus Oracle or Oracle versus Google. I don't know how you call it. Um, so Charles has a much better knowledge of how this whole process works, but I'm going to give everyone a little bit of backstory on why the hell they're in court. And then Charles can go into the legal system that I don't fully grasp, which thank you during the break for giving me a little bit more <laughs> insight as to how this whole process works. Because today I'm like, oh, well, if they if they heard this yesterday, shouldn't there be some kind of news? And the answer to that is no, it's going to take forever. Uh, but anyway, so um, Google, company you all probably know, makes a operating system for mobile devices that you all probably know called Android. And when they did that... Um, I don't know if it was this way in the beginning. I don't know all of the backstory. I don't know if it if it initially used Java and they took it out because of Oracle or if they never used Java. But basically what they've done is they've re-implemented Java or re-implemented Java's API uh, so that Android developers can write in a language they're familiar with without actually having to use Oracle's licensed software. Now... You can imagine why this could be getting, this could sound murky, right? So what Google basically did is, um, and what the lawsuit is about, is that Google re-implemented Java's API. And Oracle says that that is copyright infringement. Now, the way I read that in my head when I first read API was I'm picturing something more like a web API, right? Where you make calls to endpoints in an API and then you get results back. Well... This isn't quite that abstract. It's more like Google wrote an interpreter, for a better word, uh, that re-implements a bunch of the functions that Java developers expect to utilize, right? So you make an application, you call what you think are Java functions or Java endpoints, if you want to call it that, and this thing that Google wrote responds in the same way that Java would have, and your Android app works, right? So uh, Oracle doesn't like that. Now, whether you like Oracle or not, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know where you want, where I personally, when I first read this, I'm like, oh, Oracle's just being dumb. Oracle has no rights here. They, they're, they're just being stupid. Uh, so far, the courts have not thought that. They have thought, yes, absolutely, Google has attempted to plagiarize uh, Oracle software. Uh, and I was... Maybe because I have a certain amount of bias for Oracle, I don't know. But uh, I was falling on Google's side to begin with. Now that I understand this a little better, I'm really not sure where I fall. That sure does sound like they've rewritten software or reverse-engineered software uh, that somebody else wrote for their own gain. And that sounds a whole lot like copyright infringement. So anyway, we have three, is it? Yeah, three articles here that give you various different pieces of this puzzle. Uh, it went to the Supreme Court Wednesday, and I guess they heard the arguments, right? So, Charles, this might be a great spot where we can talk about what the hell that means and what's next. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> all right. So this case started with, so this is a federal, this is a federal lawsuit. It started with a district judge, um, in this case in California. Now, the, um, I'm going to leave some of the procedural history out, but basically the judge ruled in favor of Google 
and said that what Google did was covered under the doctrine of fair use. The case was appealed and it was heard by the by special circuit court, the federal circuit that's specifically designated to hear like certain types of copyright and patent cases. They have basically kind of a subject matter jurisdiction over it. Um, and this court admittedly has a reputation for um, kind of sometimes doing its own thing, but they, um, they uh, reversed and reversed the decision in favor of um, Oracle. So the case is then appealed to the Supreme Court, which hears appeals from this and other um, circuits. And part of the reason the Supreme Court agreed to hear this case, because the Supreme Court only takes about 80 cases a year, is um, there really isn't good settled law on this question that um, is precedential for the whole country. So it's a good opportunity for the Supreme Court to um, speak authoritatively on this question. So the way the Supreme, so the way the Supreme Court hears cases is, you know, they typically have nine justices. They had nine justices when they decided to hear the case. Obviously, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died, um, and even if a replacement is appointed, um, as things stand, the case will just be heard by the eight who are currently alive and participated. So to hear a case, four justices have to decide to take it. That's called granting cert. And then there's briefs, there's oral argument, which is what happened uh, yesterday on Wednesday. And basically an oral argument, um, typically each side gets about a half hour to kind of basically make their pitch, explain why they're right as a matter of law. Um, facts tend to not be in dispute at this level. This is really just about, um, like facts shouldn't be dispute at the appellate level. This is really just about um, what what is the law? And at this level, well, the law is a little vague, so we're going to have to nudge it one way or the other. So help us figure out what we ought to be doing here. Um, and so in this case, so like Google's lawyers spoke for probably about half an hour. Oracle's lawyers spoke for about half an hour. Um, we've linked the transcript of the oral argument if anybody really wants to nerd out and see what was said. Um, the, uh, it is typical that after about being able to speak, as it were, about a paragraph, justices will start interrupting with questions. Um, sometimes those questions indicate what the justice's thinking is, but not always. Like sometimes they'll harshly criticize, they'll harshly question someone that they actually agree with. They're just trying to tease out arguments. Because remember, they've read the briefs, they've read the lower cases, or their clerks have. Um, they're just trying to kind of sound things out. Right. Sometimes the um, federal government will also be separately represented by the Solicitor General's office. And I think that a deputy Solicitor General was participating on Wednesday as well. And I think they were lean, they tilted towards Oracle's view on the question. So oral argument happens, it's about an hour, an hour and a half, typically that having happened, um, the next time the justices all meet, probably tomorrow by teleconference, um, there'll be kind of just a simple vote discussion about internally, just like where 
what you know, just kind of like what people, how people think the case ought to come out, who ought to win. Um, and then based on that, someone will get assigned to write a majority opinion. Someone will get assigned, one or more people will be assigned to write dissents. Sometimes there are multiple dissents. Um, you know, if there's really a fractured view on the law or somebody just has something they want to say. Um, if they deadlock at 4-4, four, four, which could happen because, well, it could also happen if somebody's recused, but if they deadlock, then the decision for Oracle at the federal circuit will stand, but it won't be binding precedent for um, much of the country. So not It'll only be Google. binding for case. Yeah. Not good for, not great for Google, but it's only, it would only be binding for cases appealed up through the federal circuit. Right. I was going to say not, not um, good for Google, but doesn't set precedent across the whole U S. So this could happen yeah. again with some other company. Yeah. Now the, um, so assuming that there is a decision on the merits that they are not deadlocked, then, um, and we'll see a written opinion handed down at some point before July. Um, depending on priorities, the complexity of the case and whatever else, like there's no, there's no guarantee. Like a case can be heard in October and come down in January. It might not come down until early summer. This like the October term just started and uh, it concludes in usually like June. You may have noticed that high profile Supreme court cases like anything having to do with um, abortion, gay marriage, gun rights, things like that, they come down in June. There's a reason for that. It's the end of term. They're the hardest cases. And uh, yeah, it's maybe good publicity to have those come out at the end of the year. So those are typically the last things disposed of. This case is not that, and it will certainly come down uh, sooner. But it's impossible to say when. Right. Um, so... So we could so have weeks or on. months to wait <laughs> is what is what it comes down to, right? Yeah, and there'll be no warning ahead of time um, so when bam, it's coming it down. Is. Yeah. It'll come down, and it could do any number of things. Um, it could find, for Oracle, it could find, for Google, it could reverse but send down for further proceedings. Um, they could dismiss it and just leave the federal circuit in place in the end. Um like one big unknown here is it's not clear what Ginsburg thought on the question. So we don't know if she was one of the four who wanted to take it. Um, we don't know. Right. And they don't, they don't like deadlocking four, four, if they're deadlocked four, four could also be put over for re-argument until Barrett or whomever is put on the court. So there's a tiebreaker in which right. case we'd know because they'd issue an order for re-argument. I don't think the case is important enough that they would do that. Yeah, I mean, um, in the grand scheme of things. Now, I should say in the general grand scheme of things, because that's one of the points I wanted to talk about after we got through the sort of legal side of things, yeah. is uh, what, let's say, they, so currently the software industry in general seems to think that what Google did here is not a thing that can be copyrighted, which is why Google did it. That's why countless others have probably done the same thing, right? Um, because it's it's basically an interface. And some of the articles that, I, that I've linked in here, I forget which one it was, talks about a case from way back in the 90s 
when uh, Lotus One Two Three <laughs> was yeah. sort of the big database application, our database spreadsheet application, and uh, what was the name, Quattro or something, was another application mm-hmm. that came out that was competing with it. And what they did is they had like a Lotus mode where you could switch all your menus to match identically to what Lotus One Two Three used, so that folks who were familiar with Lotus One Two Three could switch it to this mode, and then they felt like they were using Lotus One Two Three. All the menus were the same, uh, and that was basically to ease transition from their competitor to them, right? And that apparently went to court, and it was deemed that that's an interface, like that's a user interface, can't be copyrighted because it's a control. I think is, was the word they used. Um, so. IT has continued on, software development has continued on, assuming that that meant things like APIs were controls, right? And they they use the example of like the buttons on your toaster, right? If two companies make toasters that look kind of different, but have the exact same buttons on the front, the one toaster company can't come to the other and say that's copyright infringement because that's just the buttons on the damn toaster, right? Um, So my point is there's a lot of software that takes this for granted, right? Now, I don't have specific sightings, but I'm sure yeah. you could imagine, right? And of course, um, what's interesting about the Borland case is that the um, trial court in that case actually found it was copyright infringement. It went up to the First Circuit, which uh, I want to say is the Regional Circuit Court in New England. Um, they disagreed and said it wasn't, and that's the decision. And it was actually appealed to the Supreme Court. A justice was absent. I don't know why they were deadlocked four four, and so that thing happened where they didn't right. they didn't rule, and it was just and so the decision stood, but wasn't binding outside of the um, outside of that circuit. Right. So had this had the Supreme Court made a decision then, and this was declared to be applicable or whatever, uh, then this wouldn't even be a case, right? Possibly not. Or, or we'd be arguing about whether this case governs, that case would govern in this case, or right. if they could be distinguished. Right. So um, assuming there's a lot of software that already has this stuff in play, and now say the Supreme Court says, yeah, that's totally copyright infringement. Now what? What happens to all that software that's already utilizing this sort of thing? What happens to all, like... All of a sudden, every single software company that's ever written an API is going to go back and try to find everyone that's <laughs> that's copied their API or copied any piece of their software. Or they could, I should say. They may not, right? Or there's going to be a whole bunch of companies that have to rewrite their software because they know they've they've they're they're victims or not victims. They're um, what's the word I'm looking for that they've done this, right? Well, and there again, that would be a question of the breadth of the ruling and. Um the downstream effects of that. And of course, Congress is absolutely free to step in and legislate on this question. It's not a constitutional issue. Um, Congress can just come in and make a law that says you can't copyright APIs or interfaces. Um, And that's not not unheard of. You know, in cases where the law is unclear and the courts interpret it one way or another, Congress can step in and say, "Eh, actually, we want you to interpret it this way. I feel like um, this is not a thing that Congress is going to care about unless Oracle or Google lines enough pockets. I think Congress is kind of interested in the tech industry might right now. Um, I think they could be persuaded to care. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. You so know, basically we're stuck for a few months until the Supreme court does or does not do a thing. So moving forward, 
assuming we're in a world now where it's copyright infringement to re-implement an API uh, based on somebody else's API because it's, you know, because this goes toward, toward Oracle. Um, what does that mean for software development? I would think that that would further lock in some of the interoperability that we all enjoy now. It was, or prohibit, right? So in the case of Google here, um, you could imagine that if I wrote Android and initially said, all right, we want to use Java because it's a common platform and people know it because it's essentially supposedly why they did it to begin with. Um, we're going to start out by using Oracle Java because that's, you know, the easy way. But then later they could have swapped it out, right? Because there's a common interface there, right? That's the whole point of an API, right? That you can talk to it. It responds in a certain way. Whatever's on the other side of the API doesn't matter. That's the point, right? It's not re reaching directly into the code there. If all of a sudden you can't do that, what does that do to the interoperability of software that we have now? Like there's lots of things I can think of right now that depend on web APIs and depend on these, this API and that API. Uh, look at S3, right? Amazon's S3 uses a certain API for you to read and write data to, S, to and from S3, put data in there and take it back out. DigitalOcean re-implements that API for their storage engine, for their storage, uh, I forget what they call it. Uh, buckets, is it? Droplet? No, I forget. They have a thing that's just like spaces, yeah. they call it, uh, that implements the same API that you can read and write from. So does that mean that now that's illegal? Right? Like there's existing software. The thing that's nice about that is that you're not tied to a vendor. Right? Like I, if I wrote a piece of software that's made to talk to S3's API and four other vendors have the same API implemented uh, to talk to their backends, that means that uh, that someone who wants to use my piece of software and whatever backend they want to use, they have that choice. Personally, I kind of like that. Yeah, and it, it's really hard to say. Um, a lot of it depends on the breadth of the ruling. And one thing I would say is that with an eight-justice court, you're very unlikely to get a broad ruling. Because um, if you're going to, in order to get five people, you're probably going to have to have something that's fairly, fairly narrow, fairly tailored. And it could be if it, if it's a ruling that's very fact dependent, then it might not have much of an effect outside this particular case. Right. Which means we could be in this boat later. Of course, I guess. Well, yeah. It's not. It's the begin. It's the beginning of a round of litigation. Right. It's not the end. It's also not, now that I'm thinking it through, it's not all doom and gloom, right? So think about closed software versus open source software, right? In the open source world, you're free to take that code and change it and, and use it, right? So in the, in the case of how do you interact with that software, uh, if it's open and it's licensed in such a way that you, I can't sue you because you've re-implemented the API, then that's still perfectly legal. It all comes down to the license. If Oracle says, my software and my API are my copyright and you can't copy it, then they have legal precedent to sue you over it. But if I've licensed my software in such a way where I've said none of that is my own, is mine, right? 
So I guess it could still happen. It would just be one more thing that divides, you know, different types of software development. Yeah. And not every company is going to behave like Oracle, right. but <laughs> um, thank God. But, you know, you may also just see, you know, licenses that licensing language may become a little more explicit talking about APIs, interfaces, just, um, you know, Right. We'll see. Like, we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, there's a lot of, like, it is possible for Google to lose and, the sky, and for the sky to not fall. Right, right. Because it's going to come down to how they lose, how that ruling is written, and how other companies react. And what the hell, they, they might win. Now, the, the person covering it for ours thought it didn't go very well for Google. And I would agree, um, yeah. which is interesting because um, Google is represented actually by the guy who basically ultimately owns SCOTUS blog, uh, Thomas Goldstein. Um, but he seems to, I don't know, I'll just say, I'll just pass on what the Irish reporter said, that he just seemed to get the worst of it, um, couldn't fully grapple with the case. Admittedly, it's kind of arcane. But... We'll see. Sometimes the court surprises you. Yeah, I guess we'll see. It did sound like one of the justices, and I forget who it was, uh, was fighting in Google's favor. Breyer. Yeah, they said that he was a little more of a tech-savvy justice, and he kind of understood the problem a little better than the rest of them. So that could mean good. I don't know. Could mean well, it's gone well. The justice and the justice's clerks. Um, some of those things like they don't necessarily understand the issues, but they have people who do that for them. And right, okay, and you yeah, know, that makes sense. And they're all, and these are all fairly smart people, like mm -hmm. um, savvy or no, like right. Yeah, I guess we'll you don't you don't get to be a Supreme Court justice by, by being a a shoddy lawyer, <laughs> right? Well, there are some interesting examples from the past that would seem to argue otherwise, but um, <laughs> this is uh, this is Iron System and not Iron Supreme Court justice. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> All right, so uh, if anybody has any comments on the Google versus Oracle thing that aren't just flaming one side or the other, because I'm sure there's people that don't like Google the same way they don't like Oracle, uh, we'd love to hear you guys. If, uh, if anybody has any... Uh, any comments, go ahead and if you're watching live, feel free to put them in the chat. But if you're not, you can drop us an email or hit us up on social media. We'd love to hear from you guys. And I think that's all we're going to say about that. We're going to move on to an article from MSN. MSN Money, I guess. Isn't that like the name of the financial suite that uh, Microsoft... That was Microsoft Money. Never mind. Anyway. Right. Oh, man. Um, yeah, right. That goes back, doesn't it? Do they even still make that thing anymore? No idea. I can't find the title of this article because oh, there it is. Because there's like this stupid banner at the top that was hiding it, it's telling me about how I can refinance at two point four percent APR. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Get out of my way. I want to read the stupid article. Oh, oh man, dude, you gotta get right on that. Yeah, right. I could refinance. Anyway, MSN Money. Uh, IBM jumps nine percent after it reveals a plan to spin off legacy business to focus on cloud unit. The article is basically all about um, IBM's new direction toward the cloud, and that's part of, uh, of course, as many of you may well know, part of why uh, they purchased us, Red Hat, 
I say us, not including Charles, sorry. <laughs> the company I work for. Um, but basically, the article goes into how the stock market seemed to be very happy with the idea that IBM is going to spin off what they're referring to as their legacy... Uh, Legacy networking is what they said, although I don't know if the article got it wrong or if that's a word for something that I don't understand. But the way I understand this is they're, they're spinning out some of the on-prem style stuff. And the article doesn't really outline exactly what they're spinning off. But I would imagine that this is things like, I don't know, mainframe? I don't, I don't want to speculate too much there because we might be getting it wrong. But anyway, the idea is that they're going to be able to focus a little more on their cloud moves, uh, cloud software, cloud initiatives, and whatnot. So uh, the markets like that, and that's what this article is all about. So it's in the show notes. You can go ahead and read all about it. Um, I don't claim to know a whole lot about business and stock markets, but there it is. This is news, and we're in the news. And this is just from today. So, you know, breaking news. There, that's what I'm supposed to do. And there's supposed to be like a jingle that plays when I say that. There is. Um, I don't have one. How about here. This is a sound. good one for breaking news. <laughs> Maybe not for breaking news. Anyway, you have any comments on that, Charles? <laughs> not being a uh, IBM shareholder, I do not. Yeah, right. And the only other article I threw in for tonight, because I figured the Google Oracle thing was going to take up a decent amount of time, and it did, um, is this article from TechCrunch, and it's really just more of a, this guy is shouting at the clouds, uh, Google's new logos are bad. <laughs> it's really an article about, so Google, God knows why, but they've renamed G Suite to Google Workspace. You know, the thing they, they renamed to Google Suite, to G Suite, what, three years ago? Four years ago when they went from Google Apps to G Suite? Why did they mm -hmm. kind of rename it again? I don't know. There's a really funny quote in here. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, well, it's not really a quote. He's, he's paraphrased a quote. But he said something about, if you stand by a river long enough, you will see the bodies of uh, your favorite Google Apps floating down the river. And, you know, that's his way of saying, uh, Google's got a short attention span. <laughs> <laughs> and these these new icons really are kind of ugly. But I guess uh, Google Workspace is all about um, they're they're not just making things look different. They're also roping in things. So they're they're ro Google Apps roped in Gmail and Google Docs in one sort of thing, right? Calendar, Docs, and Mail. Now they're roping in chat, and there was something else. I forget what the other thing was. Anyway, um, they're roping in some more items into what they're calling Google Workspace because they're they're basically trying to unify all this stuff. I don't know. Uh, eventually, Google's going to like see a squirrel somewhere and go off in that direction, and G Suite or Google Workspace is going to become something else. Who knows? Google Desktop. <laughs> I don't know. Pick a name. So uh, there you go. If you're a G Suite user, you're going to start being a Google Workspace user. Yeah, I, I I certainly have appreciated the tighter integration between Google's services over the last couple of months. You know, it's mm -hmm. you know just this little things like you know 
scheduling Google Meets from calendar appointments, you know, easily linking um, Google Docs within those appointments. Like, it's all good. It's like, congratulations, Google. You have a groupware. You have a cloud-based groupware solution. But um, I don't love the new icons. Um, like, in particular, like Gmails is so recognizable. Why would you change it? It, it really has been the same icon since the beginning, hasn't it? Or very similar. I don't know. It's, it's certainly for a long time. Um, like I understand the desire for some kind of unified iconography, but these don't work for me. Yeah, they're really, I don't know. And I don't have them yet, I should emphasize. I still have the old icons. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if my phone does. It should, right? Because it's a it's a pixel. All the new stuff gets to me first. Let's see. Do I? I'll tell you one thing in particular that gets me is like, like or G Suite school, right? I have Google Drive open all the time. Yeah. And the fact that its icon looks visually very different from Gmail and from any docs that I might have open, I find very helpful mm -hmm. navigationally. Yeah. Um, now, and just these icons, just looking at these new icons, um, I've just, just looking at them large, I think I would find them just glancing hard to differentiate. They do munge a bit right now. I've, I found, so the Google drive icon, the old one and the new one already look a bit similar. And as a Google home user, I have the Google home app on my phone which looks very mm -hmm. similar to the Google Drive uh, icon, except it looks like a home plate, you know, home base from baseball. Yeah. Um, so you could imagine they look very similar because, you know, a home plate has kind of that same peaked look to it. Um, and I've, <laughs> in, in a rush, trying to open one or the other on my phone, frequently opened one or the other when I meant to open the other one same. because they look similar. Uh, so, yeah, I could, uh, I could definitely see that these are going to be, especially like the new icon they have for Meet, and the new icon they have for docs is they're both just like a box, right? Except one looks kind of like a camera and the other one is just kind of like a piece of paper, but they're still just a box. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from. The, the, the drive icon looks almost identical. The calendar icon, uh, I don't know. I don't know what was wrong with the old one, but whatever they're icons. I think this guy is, uh, he, he, his point is basically that, you know, you take so much crap from Google and every now and then you just got to give them a little bit of a pushback because they deserve it. <laughs> Otherwise, they're just going to keep doing stuff. How do you know when you're doing something wrong if no one complains, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's all the news I had. Did you have any news you want to talk about? I didn't see anything else in the notes. Nope. I close all these tabs, and I think that's actually going to be it for tonight, folks. In record time. Well, record time Ooh. compared to recently. My God, we've had some shows that were like two and a half hours long. I'm sorry about that, guys. <laughs> all right. So thank you, folks, for watching or listening, if you're listening after the fact. Uh, if you want to watch live, you can do so by, via the YouTubes or now on Twitch. If you go to youtube.com slash podcast or twitch.tv slash podcast, you can subscribe to whichever one you prefer and watch us live. 
Uh, I also, as of this week, have uh, subscribed to Restream so I can stream to our Facebook page as well instead of my personal Facebook profile. So if you subscribe or like, I guess, us on Facebook, um, just look for Iron Sysadmin. I think it is actually facebook.com slash Iron Sysadmin. Uh, you can also watch the show live there. So um, you can do that if you don't like Twitch or YouTube. If you want to support the show, you can do so via Patreon, or you can go back to, what was the code again? Uh, ISA Oct 2020. You can use that code, ISA OCT 2020, on teespring.com slash stores slash Iron Sysadmin to get 10% off a t-shirt or a mug or something. Uh, and we appreciate that. That that also benefits the show a little bit that Teespring sends us. And I think I've already mentioned the social medias and all that other stuff. Oh, the Matrix community. There's a link on ironsysadmin.com to get you to the new Matrix chat community since Slack has been weird with their, their invites. <laughs> but we've had actually quite a number of people join there. And uh, it's uh, it's it's fun. I, I kind of like the platform. It doesn't have some of the features that Slack does, but it has all those features that matter to me, which is in a chat application, which is chat. Uh, and it has some integrations, and that's growing every day. And it's an open source platform, which means, you know, I don't know. It feels a little better just because it's freedom. <laughs> anyway. You're just, you're just sort of Slack turned off the IRC gateways. You know, I didn't even know they did it. I... I uh, I found out not True too long story. ago. When we, when we stood up Slack at his past employer, and this is like six years ago, him and a couple other um, people at the network center basically refused to use it until we turned on the IRC gateways. <clears throat> now, to be fair, I didn't refuse to use it. I was curious. <laughs> there were probably some other coworkers that refused to use it, but I wasn't necessarily. We both know who were. We uh, both know who we're talking about. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I did think it was fun. It was fun to be able to interact with it over over IRC. But I did eventually just give in yeah. and use the client because there's better integrations in the client. Uh, the thing with Matrix though mm -hmm. is, um, it has a lot of those integrations, but has the model of IRC where there's a separate client and server, right? Which I, I just like the model mm -hmm. better because uh, it gives you a little more sure. freedom, a little more choice, and it's free, free, free open source software. So good stuff. I'd love to see. One of the main reasons I put us there is because I feel like the way to improve a project like that is to have more people using it. So the more people that use it, the more people find problems with it, the more people report those problems, the better this, the product gets. And I think that Matrix has a good, um, it could be a great thing if more people start using it. So anyway, I'm rambling on about the freedoms of open source software, but that's what you guys are here for, right? <laughs> so i think we're going to call it a night thank you guys for watching live uh anyone who's listening after the fact thank you for listening and we will see you in the next show any final thoughts charles um no? for those um curious two lanes now winning 24 to 14 over houston oh good <laughs>